0: The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Well, my name is Kyle. Um, It's been a while since I've uh, been able to have the privilege to uh, preach to you and to learn God's word with you. It's been like a month. I've been traveling quite a bit. So if you're new to Mars Hill, I'm new. Hello. My name is Kyle. been in Rhode Island. Uh, Excellent clam chowder, by the way. If you ever go there, that was fun. Uh, and Louisville for PhD work, Uh, and uh, that's a great town too, and uh, just last week, or two weeks ago, I forget when I was up there now, it was cold, and I had left here, and it was like 70, and I was talking to my cohort members, guys doing a PhD at the same time, I was saying, you know, I like Mobile, but man, I kind of miss winter, I grew up in the Chicago area, lived a lot of my 20s in Europe, and I just miss the winter. So I just wish that maybe one week a year in Mobile, the temperature would dip to like the 30s, and it would snow. I'm not asking for much, but I wish that would happen. And they're like, oh, you don't know what you're asking. Like, we live in Michigan and blah, 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 blah. So anyway, I get back, and it's like 70. And then whatever wish fairy heard me, like patted me on the back and said, wait, wait. And then it happened. It dipped to like the 30s, and it snowed. So if you hate snow, I apologize. That was me. I'm so glad. Now, if I had known that that was the one wish I would have granted this year, it would have been very different. Uh, But nonetheless, there you have it. Snow, I apologize. Ruth, chapter 4, verse 18 through 22 is where we are today, which means this is our last sermon in the book of Ruth. I'd like to tell you where we're going Onward after Ruth, if it hasn't been announced to you or you don't know already, the next big uh, study of scripture that we're going to do is the book of James. But before we go to the book of James, which will be the second week in January, we're going to do a mini series called When Kingdoms Collide. Now, I know that term mini series has totally lost its currency here at Mars. We've been doing mini-series since the summer, I think, right? Like, oh, we're just going to spend a few weeks in spiritual disciplines two months later, right? And then we're like, oh, it's going to be this big study of Ruth two months later. But really, we're only going to spend a few weeks, I promise, in exploring the time in which the Lord Jesus Christ was born in the Roman Empire. When? Through God's providential timing, there is an establishment, an authority, and a guy who thinks he is the king of kings, and he is God on earth. But little did he, does he know that there is a small province called Palestina in a little tiny town called Bethlehem. The actual king of kings has come into the world. So we're going to take a look at the Roman context around uh, Christ's coming as we celebrate in this Advent season. That's where we're going. Where we are today is Romans chapter four, verse 18 through 22. By now, you've probably opened your Bible to that passage, and you're looking, you're thinking, what? Why don't we just skip this bit (laughs) and move on? All I see is a bunch of names, half of which I don't know how to pronounce. I'm I'm with you right there. I I don't know how to pronounce them either. But we are told in the New Testament that all scriptures got breathed. I think there is a reason why Ruth ends in this way. And the reason is that last name on the list, King David. What the author is showing us is that this whole story that we've seen of Ruth was God providentially working in a way that would bring about Israel's greatest king to establish the throne of David upon which God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would establish for eternity for all power and authority on heaven and on earth. So this is a big deal of where Ruth has been setting us up to go, which is why I think it's really important that we take a look at this genealogy. And the way I want to do this is to take a step back and to look at Ruth from a distance. You know, sometimes the way that we go through uh, preaching at Mars Hill uh, is my favorite way, just word for word, line for line, paragraph to paragraph, but admittedly, if you stay there too long, you will miss the forest because you've just been concentrating on a tree. And what I want to do today is I want to take a look at Ruth from the 30,000-foot view. Just to look at everything that it has to offer. And to see how the story of Ruth is actually a microcosm and a, a part of a much bigger story, a grand story of redemption that God has been Showing, And you can see that God in his providence works in such a way uh, that he foreshadows the things that he is about to do. So when we look back into the Hebrew Bible, into the Old Testament, we can see God's work all along when Christ comes. So we're going to do two things today. We're going to look at Ruth's story of redemption, and then we're going to look at God's grand story of redemption to see how it fits in it. So if you missed all of the book of Ruth, you're in luck, because today we're going to go through the whole book of Ruth uh, in one sermon. Are you ready? Okay, so let's buckle in. We're taking off up to the 30,000-foot view, Ruth's story of redemption. Ruth is a story that's broken up into four chapters. Very profound, is that not? Four chapters. Chapter 1 opens up with verses 1 through 5. And essentially, it introduces to us death and loss. So, not off to a good start. Elimelech, whose name in Hebrew means God is king, decides, you know what? I'm king. I'm going to decide what is best for my family, what is best for myself. I'm going to usurp God's authority, and I'm going to move out of the land that he has told the Hebrews to indwell. And we're going to go somewhere else. So he moves his wife, Naomi, and his sons from Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And in doing so, not only does he usurp God's authority, but he's willingly leaving God's provision behind, that being Bethlehem, house of bread. And he went to this nation called Moab, which, if you know earlier from the Old Testament, was a nation that began from an incestuous affair with Lot and his two daughters, That's not off to a good start for a nation. And then their story continues on, bad notes after that. They were an enemy of Israel. They constantly upheld a culture that was ungodly and unholy. And worst of all, they refused to worship God and instead worshiped so-called gods, pagan deities. Well, this poor decision that Elimelech made leads to death. Malon and Kilion, his two boys after Elimelech's death, marry Moabite women. Orpah, and Ruth. And like Elimelech, Malon, and Killion die as well. You should have heard it. Come on, Kilion. Something bad's going to happen, right? And after Elimelech and Malion, or Malon and Kilion die, all three women are left without their husband. Death and loss. And after death and loss, we see, in verses 6 through 22, come bitterness. This loss is just too much For Naomi. So she decides to go home. She'd rather face the disgrace and the gossip and the rumors and the uncertainty of an older widow widow, would face in her old land than stay in Moab. It's gonna be hard, but she can't bear this loss, and so she goes home. But her daughters-in-law follow her. And she's thinking to herself, it's gonna be hard for me. I can't imagine how difficult it's gonna be for Orpah and Ruth. So she tells the girls, stay in Moab. Orpah listens, but Ruth loves. That's the difference between these two girls. Orpah listens to the bad advice and goes back to Moab, but Ruth doesn't care. She loves Naomi, she's expressing this chesed love, this unrelenting covenantal love that God expresses to us. She's showing that to Naomi, and Ruth has this famous line, where she says, for where you go, I will go, Naomi, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death should depart me from you. And here we see, for the first time, a remnant of hope in the most unlikely place, a non-Hebrew widowed woman, Ruth. She had just as many reasons to be bitter as Naomi did. She lost her husband, too, but she refused. Naomi, though, gave in. She insisted on being called Mara, which means bitterness, because she thought God was dealing very harshly and poorly with her. Naomi failed to recognize God's big picture and didn't even see that there was a remnant of hope following her all the way to Bethlehem, and didn't recognize that remnant when it was speaking to her. She did not have an eternal perspective. And so chapter one closes on a very low note. Death, loss, bitterness. However, we have that tiny glimmer of hope peering through this story, chapter two. Chapter two begins with a plan in verses one through three. Ruth hatches this plan. We gotta eat. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to the field of grain and there I'm going to glean. And in doing so, she takes advantage of a law that God gave to provide for people in her situation. For the poor, the widow, the sojourner. Ruth is all of those things. She's the ultimate outsider, she's the ultimate other. And yet God is still providing for her. She comes up with this plan. Then in verses three through 17, Ruth has a providential encounter in the field with the grain. She meets a man by the name of Boaz who the narrator calls a worthy man. This worthy man hears about Ruth's faithfulness that she loved instead of listened, that she rejoiced as opposed to being bitter. And so he promotes her to a very high social status, or at least gives her the benefits of that. He secures food for her and for Naomi so that Ruth can continue to care for Naomi. And he prays a blessing over her. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so that remnant of hope builds It becomes brighter, stronger, and thicker. Verses 18 through 23, we see that remnant of hope bleed over into the hopefulness of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth brings home the provisions that Boaz had given her, and Naomi immediately recognizes what's happening. Boaz, uh, yeah, that's really good news because he's our kinsman, and he can be a kinsman redeemer. And here we are introduced, in the background of the story at least, to this concept of levirate marriage, which means uh, uh, brother's husband. Wait, husband's brother. Got that one backwards. Where a man would marry his brother's widow in order to keep the land and the wealth and the family name from continuing on, as opposed to going off into oblivion. And so Naomi recognizes that this is a possibility now for Ruth and her future. So the chapter actually closes on a high note. A plan led to a providential encounter, which in turn led to hope that Boaz might redeem Ruth. So that remnant of hope again continues to build. Now, the next chapter, chapter 3, is structured strikingly similar. To chapter 2. Did you notice that? It also begins with a plan. There's an encounter near grain, and then it ends with hope. Chapter 3, in verses 1 through 5, Naomi hatches a plan. Before it was Ruth, now Naomi's hatching a plan. The plan is this. Ruth, clean up, take a bath, smell nice, Get rid of the clothes that you were wearing, which indicate that you were in mourning for your husband's death. Wear new clothes to indicate that you would be ready to marry and go propose to Boaz. Verses 6 through 13, we have another encounter near grain. Ruth has an intentional encounter with Boaz in the threshing floor where they would thresh the grain. And Ruth asks Boaz, hey, Boaz, you prayed a blessing over me. Do you remember? Do you recognize that you could be that blessing? That the thing you wished upon me could be you. God could use you to bless me. So she says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And Boaz agrees and calls Ruth a worthy woman. The same word that was used by the narrator, to describe Boaz as a worthy man. So verses 14 through 18, Ruth and Naomi are tentatively hopeful, right? Ruth comes home and Naomi goes, so how'd it go? And she said, he said yes. And then Naomi's like, yee, right? This is awesome. Okay, but wait just a second. (laughs) My name's Mara, remember? So I'm super bitter. We all have that friend. Like, I just got a house. Really? You also got a mortgage payment. You're like, that's what's happening here. Let's tamp it down a little bit. Because something could go wrong still. Like, Naomi's not quite sold all the way. She's cautious, waiting to see how things turn out. So chapter 3 ends on an even higher note. Boaz is interested in redeeming Ruth. There's a greater hope. This remnant of hope continues to build to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we have the, oh, no, moment of a story. Every good story has one of those, oh, no, moments. When things are trucking along, they look like it's going the way that it ought to go, towards the ideal, towards reconciliation, towards redemption. And then all of a sudden, there's a wrench thrown into the plan. Oh, no. The wrench that was thrown into the plan for Ruth's redemption by Boaz It's the fact that there is a man who would be a closer redeemer than Boaz. So now we're chewing on our fingernails, nervous, right? Will Boaz get to redeem Ruth? Will God's plan to see Ruth redeemed through Boaz succeed? We don't know until we do. Yes, God is sovereign. He's in charge, he's orchestrating this even though it looks like a wrench has been thrown into the plan. He knew the wrench was there all along. Yes, Boaz will receive the rights to redeem Ruth. And so he does. In verses seven through 10, we see life and gain. Boaz redeems the land and marries Ruth. This Moabite from a land that began in an incestuous affair between Lot and his two daughters, that was an enemy of Israel, was ungodly in their cultural practices, and did not worship God of Israel, she is now a part of God's people. She's not living in the land that God had promised them, and she is worshiping him. She is no longer an outsider. She's an insider. And Naomi, who thought God was dealing miserable, miserably to her, she's saved the whole time. She thought God was just gonna see this through to the end to my destruction and despair and depression. Nope, reversed, you're saved. And if that's not enough, the story continues. In verses 11 through 17, we see joy because of the birth of a son. So not only has God given life and gain to Ruth and Naomi, but he gives them joy because Ruth gives birth to a son named Obed. And if we're curious about which Oved this was, this was the grandpa to King David. What an incredible story of redemption. That is Ruth in a nutshell. But we started with death and loss and bitterness and through God's providential working behind the scenes. He's present in the text, but you don't see him directly there, do you? He's working behind the scenes. Through these circumstances... He reverses death, loss, and bitterness to give life and gain and joy. It's the exact opposite. And not only did God provide and reverse this for Ruth, but he also set into motion the ability to give to Israel what they don't even know they need. He set into motion through Ruth's life a trajectory that will gift Israel with King David even before they know they need him, Providence, providence, providence. This is truly a magnificent story of redemption. And I believe the Holy Spirit's fingers are all over it. So here we are. We're looking down at the story now, having seen how it all works together, the 30,000-foot view. We can see its hills and valleys and rivers, You can see it's towns and it's wilderness. There's a lot we could talk about here from this vantage point. And you know, as I was thinking about this throughout the week and praying, what should I land on or talk about? One thing really stood out to me. The thing that stood out to me is not something that's present in the story of Ruth, but something that's absent. It's not what's there, but what's not there. This story is one chapter in a long book about how God is bringing about the throne of David upon which his son and our Lord Jesus Christ would ascend to to reconcile his people and the cosmos to himself. That's a big destination that we are going to. And with that grand of a destination, we would expect to see miracles and the miraculous and fireworks and all sorts of things, but we don't really see any of that in the book of Ruth. Where in this story is the parting of seas, resurrection of death, multiplication of fish and loaves of bread, walking on water, columns of fire leading people through the desert, visions of angels going back and forth from heaven, the big miraculous stuff, they're not there. They're nowhere to be found. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, Ruth's kind of a ordinary, mundane story. What's not there is more interesting to me than what could be. For this reason, we so often look for the miraculous, and that God can only work in the miraculous, and only works in the miraculous. But the problem is, we live in the ordinary, and we live in the mundane, and we forget that actually God works in the mundane to bring about the miraculous. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing in the book of Ruth. He's working in the mundane, chance meetings, going to a field of grain, threshing floors, marriage proposals, to bring about the miraculous, the descendant whose throne the Lord Jesus Fulfill in its power and authority. Sometimes I think we suppose that God only works in the miraculous, and if we do that, we jettison and we're blinded to the fact that He also works in the mundane. So maybe you work a nine to five blue collar job. It's the same thing day after day. You punch in, you do your job. You eat lunch, you do some more work, you punch out, you go home. You do the same thing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Month after month, year after year. How can God use that? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you have the precious vocation to raise children. Cleaning diapers, cleaning bottles, cleaning dishes. There's a lot of cleaning involved, right? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. How's God supposed to use that? Maybe you're a student and you wake up, you eat, you go to class, you fall asleep during the class. I know it. I know it happens. Different position now, right? I see it. Then you go to eat lunch and then you go home and you forget to do your homework and then you ask for an extension. I know that's true too now, right? It's the same thing day after day after day after day. Work, study, sleep. Work, study, sleep. And you think, how is God using this? Then the enemy says, well, you know, he can't. He can't use you in the mundane, in the ordinary. He only uses the pastors and the missionaries and the people on TV and in blogs with book deals. He didn't use you. He can't use this. And you go, maybe you're right. And you become Mara as opposed to Naomi. This is false. It's just a lie. Think about Joseph. Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, worked a blue collar job, nine to five, maybe more. I don't know how it worked back then. They didn't have unions, so who knows, right? Mary was a stay at home mom, and she raised the son of God, right? Think about all the disciples that Jesus called. They were fishermen or tax collectors. One was a tax collector, guys. He worked for the Roman IRS. How much more ordinary and mundane can you get than working for the IRS? If you're listening to this and you work for the IRS and you're angry with me, search your heart. You know what I say is true. (laughs) It's boring and it's mundane. It's a pastor uh, named Paul David Tripp. And pretty much anything he writes is money. It's very good stuff. And he talks about life in the mundane and our relationship with God in the mundane. And he says this, the character of a life is not set in two or three dramatic moments, but in 10,000 little moments. The character of your life is not set in two or three big, miraculous, fireworks moments, but in 10,000 little, tiny moments as you walk through life. He's right. Because God is writing you into his story Line upon line, paragraph after paragraph, page after page. Little by little. I mean, think about it. Who of you ever woke up from sleeping at nighttime and then had this miraculously courageous faith that you didn't have yesterday? Or this just incredible, keen, biblical wisdom that you didn't have the day before? Or this incredible, humble servanthood that you didn't have the day before? No one. Because that's not how God operates. He operates with us in the mundane. Little by little, 10,000 steps you took of courage to trust in God, which builds faith. 10,000 little moments of humility and submission to the Lord you took to get to servanthood, humility. 10,000 little steps of reading scripture, listening to godly counsel, listening to preaching and teaching, studying, reading, praying, you took for God to gift you with biblical wisdom. Friends, God works in the mundane because that's where we live. We live in the mundane. And as we celebrate this Advent season, we are reminded that Christ came to meet us where we are. So every day, even if you think it's ordinary or bland or mundane, should be seen as an opportunity, an opportunity to live out your calling, your vocation, no matter what that is to share the gospel and word and deed and to grow in holiness. Don't miss the mundane because in doing so, you may dismiss what God is doing in your life little by little. Now, does God only work in the mundane? Absolutely not. I don't want to make it sound like God only works in the mundane because of course he works in the miraculous. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate. The virgin birth of God who became man. It's a little miraculous, right? So of course he works in the miraculous as well. And for that reason, I want to now take a bigger step back from Ruth to see how God works in the mundane to get to the miraculous. In other words, how does Ruth's story of redemption fit into the grand story of God's redemption? Chapter one, God created all things very good. Everything was very good. They were ideal. They were the way that things were supposed to be. We received God's image and likeness. We were without sin and without shame, and yet temptation came and we fell. We gave it up. And so, just like Ruth's story, we have death and loss. Like Elimelech, whose name, remember, means God is king, and he usurped God's authority and says, no, I'm king, Adam did the same thing. Adam refused God's authority and decided for himself what is right and what is wrong. And just like Elimelech, who left God's provision because he usurped God's authority, so Adam, having usurped God's authority, leaves God's presence and his provision from the garden and goes into the wilderness. Worse, that sin had effect for all of us. Romans, 6, or Romans 5, 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we are still feeling the effects of that usurping of authority and leaving of God's presence. Then came bondage to sin. The very next generation we see, after Adam and Eve, Cain kills his brother Abel. Lamech abuses the institution of marriage, by inviting more women into his marriage, and then threatens to kill a guy. So he's not someone you'd want over for Christmas dinner. Right? Humanity gets worse. We become obsessed with sex and murder to the point where God says, look, everything and the wickedness of man is great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. So God judged humanity through a flood, but he spared Noah, which is our Remnant of hope. But even Noah and his descendants sinned. Why? Bondage to sin. So God called Abraham and he promised to Abraham that he had a plan. He was going to bless the world through his descendants by faith. Still, that remnant of hope is with us. But then Abraham's descendants sin. Why? Bondage to slavery of sin again. They end up in Egypt, so God rescues them. But they sin some more. God gave them a law. He made covenants with them. He sent them prophets. He goes to Israel, I want to make this relationship work. In order for us to make this relationship work, you can have no other gods before you. Is Is that good? And Israel says, yes, all this we will do. And God says, what's that? Like the golden calf? Like they sinned immediately after. God gave them this provision, to have a relationship with them. Why? Because they're serving their master. They're in bondage to sin. So God sends them into exile to show them their dependence on him. And then when he brings them back from exile, guess what? They keep sinning. Why do we keep sinning over and over and over again? Because we're in bondage to sin. But God never forgot his plan. There's always a remnant of hope, chapter two. Finally, God hatches this plan. He sent his son into the world to redeem it in the most unlikely of places in a little town called Bethlehem. The same place where Elimelech left God's provision, God sends the bread of life for the provision of all humanity. In the same place where Ruth comes to in order to be redeemed, God sends the Redeemer, His Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. In the most unlikely places, Jesus comes through Bethlehem. And not only does God desire to redeem His chosen people, but other people like Ruth, foreigners and widows, the others, the outcasts, Jesus comes and He's talking to Samaritans and to Greeks of all people. He's bringing in more than just... The Israelites, as we've read them through the Old Testament, his kingdom is bigger. God's son, Jesus Christ, is the ultimately worthy man. So where Boaz is called a worthy man, Jesus is the source of what is worthy. He is our redeemer where Boaz was, a kinsman redeemer. He is faithful to God the Father, and he's the one through whom God's people encounter truth and love. Not one or the other, But Jesus comes and preaches and teaches both truth and love. He's indwelled with the Holy Spirit. He's likened to a groom and his people are likened to a bride where there's a culmination of a marriage, kind of like we see with Boaz and Ruth. This is going to culminate in a marriage where uh, the, the wedding is going to join God and his people together forever. This remnant of hope in the Lord Jesus is one under whose wings we can come and take refuge. He even hints at that by looking at Jerusalem and lamenting and saying, like a hen, I wish that I could gather you, echoing this Old Testament, uh, this Old Testament word of God. He desires to make us a worthy bride. So if Ruth was a worthy woman, God desires to make us worthy as well. And so he gives us his Holy Spirit and he gives us us the ways that please him so that we can be more conformed to the image of his son and we can become a worthy bride in the end times that is presented pure and spotless and not a single stain or wrinkle. We are presented to the bridegroom only by his righteousness, by his faithfulness and through his grace alone. So our hope and redemption builds and you see this in the gospels. People are getting excited because they're starting to pick up on these things. And so we see people are hopeful to the point where they say, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, son of who? David. We see the connection back to Ruth, don't we? And yet, just like Ruth's story of redemption, God's grand story of redemption has an oh-no moment as well. A moment when it looks like we're going in the right direction, but a giant wrench is thrown into it. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest oh-no moment in history. Chapter three, God's son is unjustly killed. He's Brought up on false charges by jealous men, and he is executed in the cruelest manner by false kings and authorities, and here we have our oh-no moment, but like Ruth's story, it's only temporary, because God's sovereign, he knew this was coming, and Christ rose from the dead. And in accordance with scripture, he returned to life, thus proving that he was the ultimately worthy man, because death couldn't hold him down. And now he comes giving us eternal life and righteous gain, his righteousness, by all who would believe, in line with the promises that he's received all power and all authority and is the ultimate fulfillment of the throne of David. The greatest news ever is this, he's inaugurated God's kingdom of truth and love, and you are invited to become citizens of it here and now through faith in Christ's righteousness and his faithfulness. alone. That is an incredible story of redemption. One we see in microcosm in Ruth and yet played out on a grand theater. We started with death and loss and bondage to sin and God through providential workings through history leads us to the exact opposite, to reverse from death and loss to life and gain, from bondage to sin to liberation in the kingdom of God. How did we get here? Well, partly because of one foreign girl, an outcast of society who refused to give up on hope while others around her were succumbing to the bitterness of sin and remaining steadfast to the promises of God and who found a redeemer named Boaz who married her and gave birth to a son named Obed and Obed father Jesse and Jesse father David and David was the father of Solomon by Rehoboam the father of Abijah, I'm sorry, Uriah, and Solomon, father Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. That's how Ruth's story fits in to the grander story of redemption that God is telling. Friends, our God is a master storyteller. Do you believe his story is worth telling? Do you believe this story is worth telling? It's a lot of stories being told in our culture today. A lot of people are telling their story, they're not telling the story. And there's a lot of good that can be found, but there's a whole mess of bad that can be found as well. People are telling stories to vie for power, to vie for fame, Other people are telling stories that reflect the deepest desires of the human heart. We long to be loved and to love. We long to be known and to know. We long to be rescued by a power greater than us from situations that we cannot overcome. And yet what we fail to recognize is that God is telling the greatest and most fulfilled version of the things that we're yearning for. We just don't see it. Because God is the source of love and the greatest object of love. Do you want to love and be loved? Look to Christ. That God knows you more than anyone ever will and desires for you to get to know Him intimately. And the great part about that is God is infinite. And so there is never getting to know Him fully, it's impossible. You can spend eternity getting to know God and not even scratch the surface. And that He is our greatest rescuer. We love superhero movies. We want to be redeemed from something bigger and better and beyond us. It's happened. You need only look to Christ. Culture is telling us so many stories in our day. Are you telling the story that God is telling in your life and in your words? And maybe a better question to ask is, where are you in this grand story of redemption? Do you see yourself as one of the characters that God has written into his grand story of redemption. Because the thing is about the greatest story, it's still being written. The author's pen is still wet. There are still blank pages as he is writing. There's an end cover, it will close one day, but that day has not come yet. He's still writing his story. So where are you in it? Because he's given us two roles we can play in his story of redemption, and only two roles. We can be a citizen of God or his enemy. We can be a servant of sin or servant of Christ. We can be known by the world or we can be known by the one who created the world. We can be sheep within God's flock or we can be goats destined for separation. We can be the oppressed who have been liberated or the oppressors who one day God will apprehend. We can be a believer with faith that leads to eternal life for an unbeliever, where faithfulness leads to eternal death. God is still writing this story. God is still adding characters to these pages. He's still calling for you to appear in this plot. How much longer will you turn away from your inclusion in the story that God is telling? Not your story, but his. He's inviting you through his son by faith to be put into these pages, to join this grand story of redemption that he's been telling from the beginning of time. And that is the greatest gift that we can possibly be given. We need only believe that he has given this to us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we end our time in Ruth, we thank you that we are able to peer into history and to get a grasp beyond space and time of what you are doing to redeem your people and to reconcile the cosmos to yourself. We thank you that you are the master storyteller, that it's not about us or about our story, but it's about you, our relationship to you, and how we fit into what you are doing. Lord, every single day we get up and we try to write our own story. Lord, I pray in those moments that you'd send your Holy Spirit to cause us to repent and to remember that it's not about us, but it's about you. We are characters in the story that you were writing that ends in your glory and by your grace in our greatest joy. Lord, I pray that if we do not find ourselves in your story, that we would come to you. And that if we do find ourselves in our story and we struggle to live life in the mundane, that you would remind us 10,000 little steps day after day, week after week. By the power of your Holy Spirit through our obedience, you are conforming us to the image of your son. Lord, let us be a people that tells this story and invites more characters into your plot so that you receive the glory. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.